going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you so much, Capital. It is the Going Deep podcast, and periodically we just, every once in a while, need to check in because health is wealth. We like to tap into our RTZ, Raptors Tweet Zone fans, who sometimes it can be a little scary as a Raptors fan because everything is a bit of a crisis. And so our embedded Raptors reporter on all things the vibes in Raptors land is Jesse Rubinoff and I, I don't know if, are, are is the arrow pointing up is it part, pointing down is it in a uh, depreciating or ascending stock you do the most predictable Raptors thing in the world which is not only lose to the Detroit Pistons but you lose mm-hmm. to the Detroit Pistons allowing them to break their historic streak for losses but then you go out and you Bring in R.J. Barrett, right? Saga City, stand up. You bring in quickly, who I think actually is going to be the most important person in that deal. And maybe we don't need to move off from Pascal. He puts up 36 and a win over the Cavs. Five threes. Who says he can't shoot threes? (laughs) What is your appraisal of what has been an emotional roller coaster for Raptors fans over the course of the last week? I think had they not made the trade, the loss of the Pistons would have been an absolute franchise altering disaster, but because they made the deal and there was some positivity in Raptors land and people were like, ah, yeah, okay. It's not the worst thing in the world. It's and a you little can tell bit yourself that's why they lost. Yeah. Oh, we didn't, we, we didn't have exactly. our players in town. Yeah. We shipped two starters out. That's why we lost. Exactly. I, I felt it was a, a little bit embarrassing, you know, having seen all the things we've seen over the course of the Raptors, you know, history and the organization, like to lose to a team of that, quality was was disappointing but nonetheless it allowed for us to process that very quickly and then move on to what we now know is a a new look raptors team and i think for the longest time dj and you'll agree with me with this and i think all raptors fans do is that the, the frustration was that the raptors were not choosing a direction or a path and you wanted to know what are they going to do with oj and og ananobi what are they going to do with pascal siakam they did nothing with Fred Van Vliet last year. They made the, some would say, ill-advised decision to trade a first-round pick for Jakob Pertl at the deadline, thinking that probably the team was better than it actually was. That didn't work, and we wanted to know what was happening. I thought it was getting to the point where Bobby and Masai almost needed to have a press conference to sort of explain what the lay of the land was. Like, are they evaluating? Are they looking? Like, nobody knew anything. There had been radio silence from the front office in that sense. So to finally have a move being made, and shout out OG Ananobi, really good Raptor, really good guy, fun guy to cover in the media, some great little quips here and there. But this is exactly what Raptors fans wanted. You either wanted draft picks or you wanted guys who were around the same age as a Scotty Barnes to try and build around a young core to see what they're made of. And now you have five weeks before the trade deadline to figure out is the 36-point guy from a couple nights ago, does he factor into your future? That is the only thing that matters from here until the trade deadline. Because as we saw, Pascal Siakam can still play. It's just a matter of does he fit within the new system? It's been one game with Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett. Pascal showed out really well in that one game. But moving forward... Is it going to be the best thing for your organization moving forward to have all of these guys together? Or does it make the most sense to trade Pascal and try and get as many assets as you can? Because the reality is, as great as he is, he's turning 30. And sometimes when guys get over 30, you diminish rather quickly. I don't know that that will be Pascal Siakam, but that's the decision that needs to be made in the next five weeks. Well, I think that's the number that matters. Not so much what he will demand in an extension if you want to allocate those resources to him because there's cap gymnastics that can be worked out. But really, 
the number on his birth certificate and the fact that, to your point, he is 29 turning 30. Because when you look at this roster right now, and I believe every decision that's being made is through the lens of getting the most out of Scotty Barnes. This is now his team in the very same way that veterans like Josh Donaldson and Jose Batista and Marcus Stroman were moved out of the Blue Jays' locker room to give the clubhouse to Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. I think this is happening right now with Scotty Barnes, who is age 22. So when you put beside him a 23-year-old R.J. Barrett and a 24-year-old Emmanuel Quickly, and this is wild, Grady Dick is 20 years old. He cannot drink alcohol in the United States of America. I spent the morning fighting with people on Twitter on whether or not he's already a bust. We're not even at the all-star break yet. That's ridiculous. And uh, they're worried about him being a bust because, you know, he hasn't shot the lights out of the ball just yet. To me, this is about building around the age profile. We haven't really been able to see much of him, uh, so I can't say he's a bust either, but Christian Coloco is 23. So I think this is who works from a timeline perspective Mm -hmm. and a style of play perspective with Scotty Barnes. The other interesting thing I thought to myself when I thought this deal was going to come to fruition and eventually did is, that's interesting, RJ Barrett and Scotty Barnes played against each other in high school in Florida. I saw that picture where, where RJ yeah. was the guy yeah. and Scotty Barnes was making his name off of playing well against RJ and how things have changed. Times have changed where now Scotty Barnes is the guy in a franchise in RJ's hometown, hometown adjacent. Cause Mississauga people will tell you they're from Mississauga, not from <laughs> Toronto, but my immediate thought when RJ came back is, oh, man, he's going to get a bag mm-hmm. off the court endorsements. This is the best player to play for a Canadian team, not the best in terms of career. You know, Jamal McGlure made an all-star game, obviously. Corey Joseph won a championship. But the best player at this time, someone in their prime playing in the city, that's Canadian. But also the guy right now who's making a bag off the court on this team is Scotty Barnes. Mm-hmm. Like he is the base. So I'm interested to see how those intangible things work out. But I said it earlier. I think the actual, I think neither are throwing, but the actual key piece in this trade is Emmanuel quickly. Someone who can really get the ball and go can break down a defense and score finish at the cup with both hands can shoot from three, and quite frankly, you're buying a brand name. He's a Kentucky guy. Yeah. And and it is very rare that a Kentucky guy doesn't exceed their draft slot, specifically guards. And so I think the comp for me and him in a system where he's going to have the ball in his hands a bit more, he'll have a little bit more license and freedom than what he had under Tom Thibodeau is Tyrese Maxey. The steps that he took when he had the license to after James Harden was removed from the scenario, I think we could see a no-frills version of that by Emmanuel quickly. And to me, the trade's a win in that case, no matter what happens with with RJ. That's my read on the players and the return. Some will say, well, listen, you could have got three first-round picks for OG a year ago. Mm-hmm. I mean... I just can't imagine that that was actually true. I I mean, I'm sure there was some truth to it, but not all picks are created equal. Like there are three when, and are they protected to what level and whose picks are they? You know, if you're getting three picks from the Memphis Grizzlies, who you think are going to be one of the best two or three teams in the West until, you know, John Morant continues to go on IG and ruin the team. (laughs) That that's different than getting essentially what is a extended first round pick because although it's a second it's a second from Detroit originally who is you know the worst team in basketball that's my read on on the deal what was your initial read on it yeah well I think you raise a really good point like what's what's really the difference between a 24 year old in Emmanuel quickly and an older college player who you're going to take in the first round like one is 
a ready-made player who you see is per 36 numbers. Like the guy averaged 22 points a game per 36 minutes. Like he is a prime candidate and you can talk to anybody around the NBA who watched the Knicks play like that. The Emmanuel quickly was waiting to get more minutes and waiting to get more run. And it was just never in the cards in New York because they saw, first of all, he was blocked by Jalen Brunson and he was not getting the minutes. And now he comes to Toronto and he's finally going to get the ability, the role, the minutes, and you're going to see what he's made of. Is he that actual 22 point per 36 minute guy? And these things that you look at this roster and they're still lacking shooting. There's no question about that. RJ Barrett's not a great shooter. Emmanuel quickly is not a great shooter either. So they're not better in that sense, but it was for the first time watching that game in their debuts. It was like, you were done with the six, nine experiment. Like it was a conventional lineup and it was almost refreshing in a sense, because while it was, uh, it was nice to see them try something with the six, nine project. And it was, they went on a limb and they tried it and they gave it a shot and it just didn't work out. It's nice to now see them pivot a little bit and say, okay, there are things that that lineup brought us, but there are things that a conventional lineup can bring us. And it's time that we pivot and see what that can do for us. And you now have an actual point guard in Emmanuel quickly, and you have more ball handlers, which I think is really helpful for this team too, because the way that they play the assist numbers are up with Darko Ryakovic, third in the NBA. They like to move the ball around very quickly. And the more guys that you have that can actually move with the basketball really helps in that sense. And it's going to contribute to even more open shots. And you're already starting to see that this team is turning a little bit into a better shooting team. Their numbers have been better than they were at the bottom of the league at the beginning of the season. So all of those things are positives. I think the one thing that aside from the shooting is going to present a bit of an issue is defensively because OG Ananobi was what he was offensively. And I know he thinks that he could have been better or have more of a role himself on the Toronto Raptors more than just a three and D guy, so to speak. But he was an exceptional defender. He defended everybody's best player for the most part and did a remarkable job. And I think you saw against the Cavs, there are going to be some nights where the Raptors might get exploited because even with OG Ananobi, I think the Raptors defense was a little bit underwhelming at times. And now with the lack of having your best defender on the team anymore, where is that defense going to come from? Because the Cavs were missing some, some players and they still scored at will. It's going to take some time, but they're going to need to recommit on defense. That means you're going to need more from Scotty Barnes more from Pascal Siakam, more from everybody who's on the floor to make up for the loss of OG Ananobi at that end. You know, the same things that'll make you laugh will make you cry, and your greatest strengths can be your greatest weaknesses. And Project 6-9, the beauty of it is defensively. Long arms, there's no space. Exactly Getting right. the pass lanes. And that's exactly why it's difficult offensively. Because there's no space. Everyone needs the same areas of the court. Yeah. And so everything just looked... A little discombobulated offensively, you know, unless, you know, the Project 6-9 guys that you're going with are, you know, Paul George, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, these guys who can handle and pass and shoot Shoot, and do everything. everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the problem. I also think that, you know, sometimes, you know, good process can still lead to bad outcomes. And I think it was a good process given where the league was pace and space everyone's playing at faster paces getting up threes switching everything and i think in the process of building out that team the league has switched and now people are playing with traditional lineups look at the the best teams in the league celtics the the timberwolves the nuggets they all play with one if not two bigs traditional back-to-basket centers. Remember those? And so now I think, look at the Cleveland team that had injuries. They play with two bigs. Now I think the questions being asked of teams schematically are starting to become different. And Masai actually said this. Things are cyclical and the trends will stop. And so everyone wants to get up and down and shoot threes and be the Suns or the Golden State Warriors. 
Well, the Golden State Warriors stopped being the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. When they were on the back end of them winning championships, they went to the middle of the pack in terms of getting threes up and pace. And in the mid-range, which is such a bad analytical shot, now is one of the most efficient shots because it's the one that the defense is giving you for free. And so I almost feel like they were building a roster for where the game was. Now the game has rapidly changed and become more traditional that they have to recalibrate and once again build a roster for where the game currently is. I say all that to say, you know who Raptors fans would die for right now? Jonas Valanciunas, mm-hmm. the guy who couldn't get off the bench in fourth quarter. Oh, man, he can't get out to shoot to stop these spread fives and these shooting fours. Now you'd love to have Jonas in your starting lineup. Yes, there's no question about it. Like I think the jury's still out on whether Jakob Pertl even fits. I think they, they brought him over and they thought it was going to be you know, a perfect fit and they were going to elevate into the top six in the East and everything was going to be all hunky-dory. And that did not happen and I think people are I don't want to say souring because I feel like it's unfair to Pirtle because he does certain things that I think are really beneficial to your lineup like he's, he's obviously his field goal percentage is through the roof like is he the greatest rim protector of all time probably not is he the greatest rebounder for a big man of all time no so they're they're going to need to make an evaluation on on him uh, moving forward but it's just it almost feels like if the the six nine project was like ten years ago, it would have been perfect. It just so happened the timing was the league, like you said, shifted to a, a place that I personally am not a fan of. Like I think it's kind of ridiculous that everything in the NBA now is like run and gun, shoot threes, go the other way, shoot a three. Like if you look at the three point percentages of these teams, the best teams are the teams that hit is at the best clip like it's not rocket science what the nba has become well that that's the thing i never understood is yes you know the rockets with james harden and the warriors with the splash brothers are getting up a lot of threes that makes sense because they have the best three-point shooters (laughs) in the league but unless you also do why would you play the way they play yeah, like with shooters that aren't as good as that? <laughs> right. like, that doesn't, to me, makes no sense. Yeah. It's like, sl- slow it down a little bit. Like the Raptors, what's hilarious is that the way that they played even last year, horrible shooting team, horrible. But what did they do? They get the ball and run as fast as you possibly can. So it's like, the, in order for them to win, they needed more shots because they're not a good shooting team. So the math needed to work for them. They needed like 15 more shots and 10 more possessions to be able to win basketball games. But at the same time, giving other teams more possessions as well, because they're playing such a fast pace, these teams are better three-point shooting teams than you. Like if you do the math there, you're just putting yourself behind the eight ball because you're just, you can't, you can't hang with them. You're just plugging holes in a leaky boat. Exactly right. In order to get those added possessions, you have to crash the board. Exactly. You're not balanced defensively. You got to gamble and go for steals. All of a sudden you're, you're fouling more than you should. You're in the bonus early. You're giving away free it's just points. Like a logical. Yeah. It's just a logical over time. And now I think they're making at least a, a, a little bit of a decision to pivot and, see if you can become a little bit better. Like the thing, the thing that if you're looking at a drawback of this deal is that they're still not a good shooting team in a shooting league. And it remains to be seen if having, I mean, Pascal a pretty good night shooting three and Scotty Barnes is now 40% three point shooter. And if, if that can hold, if like Scotty is actually a 40% three point shooter, then the need for shooting around him doesn't it's not as glaring as it once was but last year he was a 32 percent three-point shooter like this is the guy that's going to be in control of the ball most of the time so you need to make an evaluation like is he this is he the 40 percent guy is he somewhere in the middle because if he's even somewhere in the middle like having him and pascal who pascal prior to last game was a disaster from three over the last month or so you can't have non-shooters around them and and that you might think that they can coexist, but if you surround those two guys with non-shooters in a shooting league, as good as Emmanuel quickly is, as good as you, you know, you might think Grady Dick eventually might become, it's still not going to be enough because, as I just said, the best teams in the NBA are the best shooting teams. It's not rocket science. You can have all the talent 
you want in the world. But if those guys don't shoot at a high enough clip, the math doesn't work out in your favor. So now what you have to do is evaluate, is Scotty that dude that shoots 40% from three? Is Pascal the guy who hit six threes last night, uh, in the last game? Or is he the guy that shot 20% for the month from three before that? And can those two guys work together? And if not, you got to move on. Well, I think he's both guys. I think it's about context and circumstance. And Scotty Barnes, his upper trajectory, based on the fact that you know, threes, he couldn't shoot at all. It's insane. In, it's in, insane. In, in college and in high school. And now he's taking step back threes. I actually don't even know how it's possible. Like, yeah. I don't know how you can go from not like his, his MO was like not shooting. It was like, okay, he's going to be, you know, a quasi magic Johnson type player where he's going to be a six, whatever he is, six, eight point guard and distribute the ball. That's his MO. He's going to be a passer. And he's going to be a creator and a rebounder and all that. He's like Kevin Durant out there. Well, it's but if anyone who watched him at Florida State, he was essentially Sean Marion. Like he was this energy right. guy that ran around, right? But wasn't certainly, you know, the the facilitator or you know the offensive creator for his own shot. But it, the easiest three to make is the wide open three, the corner three, the catch and shoot three. We're not expecting players like Pascal who haven't been hitting them consistently to be shooting them, you know, off the bounce like. A Steph Curry or James Harden, but even though RJ and quickly themselves aren't great three point shooters, I think their skill set can create better threes for other people. Because what do they do? They get paint touches and they put pressure on the rim, specifically with RJ. And we were talking to Scott Morrison, Canadian uh, assistant coach uh, in the NBA, spent time coaching the Celtics G league team in Maine and an assistant on the Celtics staff. And now was with jazz. And I remember one of his projects in the off season, cause you know, the assistant coaches would go around and work on a project in the off season mm-hmm. and chart things. And one thing he, he just did a study of paint touches, like the amount of time a player on offense with the basketball got two feet in the paint and the amount that the offensive efficiency jumped was astronomical. That not necessarily them shooting it, not necessarily them even leading directly to an assist, but just how it breaks down a defense. And now you have a defense in scramble mode where any action that happens after that is much more likely to lead to a basket and it's optimum. But the greatest benefit of those paint touches was three point shots. And there was a correlation between the two. And although quickly and Barrett don't necessarily shoot the three um, and from an outstanding clip, you know, assuming there's enough minutes for him to get on the floor with them, I think you see a jump out of someone like Gary Trent Jr., who's a great catch and shoot player when he's on. Maybe Pascal's percentage goes up a little bit because again, he's shooting wide open uncontested right. threes. Yeah, that's a great point. And and he's not he's not someone who's dictating offense, driving the ball into the ground for the balance of a possession and then at the end of the clock shooting a three. Like in this relatively similar offensive makeup on although it was a different coach in a different year. How often did people try to create, try to break down the defense? Nothing happened, nothing happened. And it's like, okay, where's Fred? Can you just hoist up a three at the end of the shot clock? Because we've run out of ideas and we've just exhausted options. I I think possessions like that will be few and far between. But I think the greatest question is, is Pascal Siakam going to be on this roster? Mm -hmm. And is this a move to see if he can work with Scotty under this new alignment or is it just the first domino to fall of many? And the next big one would be Pascal. And we've essentially set the floor on what we'd receive from him. Cause everyone would argue Pascal might not be the a better fit on all teams. Like, I don't know he's, if he's a fit on the Knicks the way OG is, but he's certainly the better player and more teams would have interest in him given. They also have to be confident that they can resign him, which I think is the biggest question the, the question now is, is, is it inevitable Pascal gets moved before the deadline? I actually thought 
prior to the trade that it was. I thought both he and OG and Anobi were going to be on the move. Ultimately, OG is the first one out. But I feel like the sentiment is now shifting. And I don't want to compare it to sending Rudy Gay out and then all of a sudden the Toronto Raptors went on this crazy run and everything shifted after that trade. They went into essentially a decade of prosperity because of one trade when they were trying, in essence, to tank that year. And then they made the trade and everything was rosy after that. But I feel like from what I've seen on on Twitter and you know, talking to, to Raptors fans, the vibe on Pascal Siakam is that all NBA type players don't just grow on trees. And when you have someone that has given as much as, pa- as Pascal Siakam has given to the city of Toronto, continually getting better and still playing at as high of a level as he has really at any point of his career, if Scotty Barnes is taking the leap that he's taken to the point where he's one of the top, I don't know, what do you want to say, 20 players in the NBA? We were having that conversation about Pascal Siakam how long ago? Maybe last year? We were having it was Pascal an all-NBA player? So that effectively, if you can convince yourself that they fit the right way, you then have two all-NBA potential players on your roster. Is he turning 30 years old? Yes, he is. But I think the way that he plays, he's never been one to be out of shape really at any point of his career. I think it's going to, he's going to be okay for the next couple of years at the very least. So you're looking at a team that has a, a core of two potential all NBA guys. And that's really hard to find. And no matter what deal you make, I don't think there's necessarily a world where you get, unless it's a supremely high draft pick. And even then we know the draft this year is not supposed to be that good. Like, where are you going to get that talent from? And you might still have Scotty Barnes and you might have an emerging Emmanuel quickly, but what is your ceiling if you do that move? Like, where are you getting the players from? And unless, here's when I would trade Pascal Siakam. If the guys coming back are in the same mold as a quickly, in the sense that you can identify the guys around the league that if you truly believe who are 22, 23, 24 years of age, maybe former first round picks that are guys that if you think with an enhanced role can get to that level, can improve on a trajectory, not quite as similar as Scotty Burns, but to that kind of level, if you can have all these guys that you think can break out at the same time, then that's going to be the only way that you're going to be able to get better because it's either that or you get picks and those picks are a wild card, but you have an all NBA type guy right now. And we wonder is Pascal. Can he be a number one? He doesn't have to be the number one anymore. He's not the number one anymore. Scotty Barnes is the number one. Can you win Pascal Siakam as a number two? You did. You did. Can you supplement him and Scotty Barnes together? That's the question. And that's for the front office to try and figure out, but it's not like inconceivable that they can't be good with Scotty and Pascal together. I don't think it's inconceivable. I think it's unlikely. But I think more importantly, he is not a number one on a championship team. And you're going to have to pay him like he is. And I don't think that is tenable. And they got a, a break in him not being all NBA last year, which makes what he can demand a little bit cheaper, but still expensive. There are 20 players who are making over 40 million a year. Pascal Siakam is going to look in the mirror and say, I should be one of them. Well, Fred's one of them. Fred is one of them. And I I don't, they were not going to go that high on that contract, nor should they. And Fred left. And I don't believe they're going to go that high on Pascal's contract, which is why I think ultimately, although he wants to stay in Toronto, uh, two sides must be interested to have a marriage. I think he's going to leave. He makes almost 38, just under 38 million this year. You don't want to get in a scenario where you've got a player like Boston does in Jalen Brown, and you're like, well, we, we don't have an alternative of how we can replace him on the roster, but yet if we keep him, we're paying him astronomical money. This is Jalen Brown's contract the next couple of years. Essentially, $50 million, 
54 million, 58 million. And he can't dribble with his left hand. 61 million in his last year of his deal. 2028, 29, 65.6 million dollars for Jalen Brown. Again, Pascal missed out on all NBA, so it's not going to get that high. But I mean, it's not going to be that far south. And if I'm Pascal Siakam, I look at Jalen Brown, I'm like, why would I want anything less than what he's making? Look at the guys who are making well over 40. Zach Levine. I mean, he's going to be traded because of it. Pascal's going to be like, should I make less than him? Tobias Harris. Should I make less than him? You mentioned Fred. He's definitely not going to think he should make less than him. Clay Thompson. And then there's people on the list who deserve that type of money. Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Jokic, LeBron James, Bradley Beal. You can make an argument if he's ever healthy. Giannis, Damian Lillard, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler. So there's people who are on that list who are there for a reason. Then there's people who are on that list who shouldn't be. And Pascal and his representation are saying, wait, I don't know. Like, should Rudy Gobert make more money than me? I don't know if he should. So I think that is going to be the rub because he's not going to be the best player on the championship team. I would argue he was the third best player on the championship team with Kyle being the yeah, second best. that's fair. Although he played the best in game one uh, on a court with a bunch of future Hall of Famers. I just don't see it working from the finance standpoint, which is, I think, the greater question is should they have traded Pascal and or OG a year ago? Because the closer we get to the February deadline, the lower the value is because you have the player's rights for a shorter amount of time. And the closer the player gets to free agency, the more inclined they're to say, well, I might as well just roll the dice and get to open free agency. Why do I want to sign an extension with this team that's trading for me? It's not even a question. It's not even a question. Like this trade of OG and OB now and the fact that they got good assets in return doesn't change the fact they screwed up royally last year. Like that doesn't absolve them of the responsibility of letting Fred walk for nothing and coming into this season, having OG and Pascal in their situations they were in. Like the issue, I think honestly, and in this, I don't have any, I'm not inside the front office. I have no real, any read inside there to make this opinion. But I think that the Raptors don't want to be bad. I feel like they don't have the stomach to truly rebuild. I think they now are justifying that by looking at what Scotty Barnes has become and well, saying we can't possibly tank. I think there's no doubt because they've had multiple chances. Right. They don't want to be the Detroit Pistons. It's like bad for them in a sense that Scotty has become as good as he's become because now they absolutely will not tank. And that's why instead of going out to get picks, which, you know, we can agree, disagree with the, the trade. We, we happen to like the trade, but that's why they didn't go out and get picks. That's why they got Emmanuel quickly and RG, RG, J Barrett. So many initials. It's hard to say, um, but that's why they went on got 23, 24 year old guys because they think like, okay, we'll give these guys a bigger role and they'll become better players. And that means that we can do this on the fly. Like we don't even have, to, we don't have to rebuild. We're retooling again. Like I really don't think they have the stomach to rebuild. And that's why I think trading away Pascal as it, it might make a lot of sense. And the vibes that you get from the front office and the lack of communication between the two camps and all that would lead you to believe that they're going to come to some sort of a, a parting of the ways, but trading them away. Like unless they get guys that are going to help right away, they're not going to be good. And I don't think that they can take that. Like, you know, how, we all know how competitive, ultra competitive Messiah is. And, you know, last year they were selfish. Well, now they're playing a better brand of basketball in his eyes. They're third in the league in assists. Like, he thinks there are really good things happening, I'm sure, with this roster. And you add some younger players and let's go off to the races again. Like, there's no, I, I actually believe, I talked about the Rudy Gay trade, uh, but right off the top. I, I believe if you if you gave Masai True Serum, like that's what he's hoping for. He's hoping for you subtract from the roster, you add other players, and you just hope that it's a, a right mix and you can just go right away instead of having to rebuild. Well, you look at the standings and who's going to be drafting in the lottery. Same faces. Detroit Pistons, Washington Wizards, Charlotte Hornets, San Antonio Spurs. 
the Portland Trailblazers, like it, it, tanking is one thing, and I, I've been team tank in the past. Oh, 100%. I, I wanted to be weak for Wiggins. Like, that was me. <laughs> I was that guy. And I, I think just history has shown it might be more prudent to stay in the murky middle for as long as possible, to be, you know, the Indiana Pacers and hope that, you know, you can acquire Tyrese Halliburton and, and he could take a step, a jump, uh, to, to be the Sacramento Kings and hope that you can acquire DeMontis Sabonis and then he's going to unlock De'Aaron Fox and then you can take a jump. I mean, unless you are the Oklahoma City Thunder who essentially have no ability to attract free agents, so your only recourse is trade and or stash and and develop you know draft pick after draft pick after draft pick after draft pick i think it might be more prudent just to hang around i mean like the knicks have done a lot of poor things but that's kind of what they did and then they get jalen brunson and they get julius randall and keep tinkering and tinkering and hope you can either develop your players into the top three or you can create a roster where like Okay, well, let's just add water. If I am right like a now, scientist in the lab, well, just, that's right. Yeah. But and now, it's, if I'm Zion and I want out of New Orleans, or if I'm um, Cavs guard Donovan Mitchell, if I'm Don, how do I forget a Donovan? How dare me! <laughs> if I'm Donovan Mitchell and I want out of Cleveland, and the Knicks are like, hey, you know, we're stacking Team CA over here. Do you want to join? Is there another like? former Villanova product that wants to come. It, I, I almost feel like you stay in that purgatory until things are aligned and, and you can strike. I, I mean, almost, in a way that's kind of what Phoenix did yeah. with Chris Paul. And they leveled that up to Kevin Durant. I kind of think that we may have just like unlocked a new way to build a team. Like you, you sit there and wait, you like wait stalk your prey. Stars. Yeah, exactly right. Like you just sit there and wait for guys like Emmanuel quickly who are just like waiting to, blow up and turn into bonafide potential NBA stars. Like there's a, I'm going, I'm looking at the best, you know, top 20 players under you know, 23 and under the problem you run into is that guys step into the league now and are just really good right away. So there's, aren't, there aren't that many guys anymore that are like high draft picks that are sitting there, not getting the opportunity. Like you're looking at some of the rookies around the league now and sophomores, like they're all, putting up crazy numbers. There just aren't that many guys. So you are hamstringing yourself a little bit in that sense. And if you just kind of wait around for disgruntled stars, like you potentially could be waiting a while because it's rare that unless you're giving up something that the team you're making the deal with someone who, who they really want, like you need to subtract in order to add. He's not just going to part ways with a 23 and under guy who might or may or may not be a star or was a former first round pick. So you might be waiting for a while. Well, and this brings up my greatest fear that I wanted to touch on with you before we wrap, because the guy who I've been waiting on, who my, you know, basketball, Canada basketball group chat has been waiting on just like, please, Lord, let him get upset and come to us. His team might win a championship. I have a future on them to make the finals. And and, and he might win yeah. an MVP. And yeah. he's age 25, the pride of St. Thomas More and Sir Alan McNabb in Hamilton, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He might be my favorite player to watch. I, uh, it's I mean, crazy. It's, it, for me, it's him and Steph Curry. Yeah. I, I thought, okay, this is what happens with the Thunder. Whether it's Westbrook or Durant or Harden, you know, they, they get there, they it's nice, it's cute, you love it, until eventually you don't win, you can't bring free agents in there, and the narrative switches, and we go from we love you and how good you are to why haven't you won? And those guys say, well, I need to sh- shut Skip Bayless up. I need to shut Stephen A. Smith up. I need to shut, well, Kendrick Perkins was a teammate of a lot of those guys, but I got to shut Kendrick Perkins up. I got to go get my ring, and I was like, we just got to wait for Shea to get fed up in Oklahoma City and for him to think, man, these these Prada shoes aren't hitting in Oklahoma the way they would in a big market and lure him back to Toronto. And now I'm afraid they might be too good too quick. They might mess around and win a championship with an entire team on a rookie deal. Here's what's absolutely insane about the Thunder and the reason why I don't think Shea, unless, unless he just really wants to come to Toronto, 
I don't think they'll they'll be bad for the foreseeable future. They have four 2024 first round picks. Wow. They have four 2025 first round picks. Like how how could you possibly screw that up? Like and think about who they have. They have Shea. How good is Chet? He's unbelievable. Like wh- wh- how are they going to be bad Chet's, moving forward? Chet, Chet's the rookie of the year. Like yeah yeah oh yeah yeah. It, honestly, this is setting up. Like you got to nail these draft picks, but the, you can have literally have misses in there and still I, hit. Like how can you not be a dynasty? I don't think you have <laughs> to nail those draft picks because I don't even think you can execute all those draft picks. Like you're gonna run two teams. Like you're gonna you're gonna be the person in the fantasy league with two different rosters. And I think they're gonna have to trade some of those picks for players. And so whatever the, another the star finishing touches you need, Kevin Durano, go back. Right? Like I, honestly, imagine. Yeah. Um, his I'm coming home SI <laughs> poster. Yeah, I, I, I the Thunder scare me because we knew they were gonna be good, but. I didn't realize they were going to be this good this quick. But quite frankly, I didn't realize he was going to be this good this quick. Like nobody other than people in Oklahoma or Canadians or Zach Lowe watch the Thunder. They're they're not, you know, on a lot of TNT matchups or, you know, later after football is over. ABC Sunday matchups. But this team is so, so good. And I don't know who wants to see them in a seven-game series. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody does. Like the potential's there. What they're second in the in the West now, and Shea is. Uh, there's a reason we say he's like one of you know top three, five players in the league that you want to watch. Like he, he plays a different brand of basketball than almost anybody else in the league. Like it's his offbeat. ability, it's completely offbeat. His ability to wiggle his way into the paint, like the the lefty, like everything. It's just so it's visually uh, appealing. Some people actually might not think so, but like, I don't know, I guess I'm a basketball purist in that I like like the little Euro steps here and there and the not always shooting threes, getting into the lane, absorbing contact, athleticism after getting hit by the contact, like that sort of thing. And we saw a lot of it at the FIBAs. Like, my goodness. Like, if you didn't know, if you're a Canadian basketball fan, like everybody sort of knew that Shea was good, but if you didn't know how good and you watched that tournament, you're like, how is this guy like not one of the top five players in the NBA. And it turns out he didn't lose a step from the FIBAs to the NBA season. He, he's that good. For me, he is, it's like we all have this in high school sports where, you know, it's now more of a game of specializing. But back in the day, kids, when we were in high school and, you know, real athletes played three sports, if you didn't take a, a semester or a term off. He is the guy who like he plays basketball but he was a star on the you know well, hockey's kind of at the same time but the football team or the you know baseball team or the volleyball team and he's just such a superior athlete and highly competitive that you see him just like figuring out how he's going to dominate that's that kind of like left-handed sport and still does even though it like it looks a little off it doesn't naturally look like everybody else but he's still like the best player on the floor yeah. at, at this like foreign sports Cere- cerebral yeah high iq yeah just kind of those angles can figure things out and like is expending just the enough energy whenever he needs to and then it's like all right i gotta turn it on here all right here we go that's so frustrating to play against yes it's like the, it's like the most frustrating thing well, in the world especially if that is your sport <laughs> yeah and this other person is just parachuting this guy's in. not even trying yes. he's smoking me it's so frustrating yeah every, everyone's had that um experience in the past uh, if they aren't uh, that person uh, here's the the question that we end on for you jesse and you show as you awake from your slumber is what we're seeing right now from North Star Award winner, I think that's what the award was. It's CP, MVP of the team of the year, the, our international basketball team now, again, in the MVP conversation in the NBA. Are we seeing the best single season performance Ooh. by Canadian in NBA Ooh. history? Steve Nash won two MVPs. Some people feel like one was stolen from Shaquille O'Neal. But is the level that Shea is playing at right now higher than what Nash ever got to? Uh, Jesse and Show, your thoughts? 
I'm going to say no right now because I think it's almost disrespectful to a two-time MVP to say that, you know, the, the counting numbers are crazy in the NBA right now. And you could look statistically and say, yeah, you know what? Shea is having a better season. He's averaging 31 a night, six assists, six rebounds. He could become the first in league history to average 30 points on more than 55% shooting with over two and a half steals a game. Like the numbers are crazy, but Steve Nash really almost before Steph Curry, like the way that the Suns' offense operated was like completely revolutionary. The seven seconds or less Suns, And I'm not prepared at this point for a guy who was the very best passer in the league and a knockdown shooter and revolutionized the game in many ways during those mid 2000s sun seasons, I'm not prepared to say that Shea's season is better than his yet. If he wins the MVP, that's the time to put them side by side for me. Sure. So Donovan, you're asking whether or not the play league wide, not just for Shea, I guess. I'm asking if this season that Shea is putting together is the best the Canadian has ever. I see. Okay. And really the, the, the only comparison we're talking about is Steve Nash. Like Steve we're, Nash. We're, we're not trying to pick out Rick Fox on the Celtics. Like we're saying like Steve Nash <laughs> in his, you know, back-to-back MVP prime or this season of Shea. I, I think I'll lean with Jesse as well, just because we've kind of seen the totality of Steve Nash's career. And I think at the, the peaks were just so incredibly high, but it also just was such a different form of basketball then too. It just, I almost feel like it's almost impossible to compare, but Cache is having just a ridiculous season. Like if you ask me to pick an MVP at this stage of the season, and it's still a lot of basketball left to be played here as we discussed this at the beginning of 2024, but I I would probably pick Shea Gilgis Alexander, even over some guys like Nikola Jokic and so on, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. But I think I would still go with Steve Nash. I do think, however, that just the, the breadth of Canadian talent, across the NBA is just insane. Now it is insane to watch even just beyond watching guys like Jamal Murray and, and the guys we saw at the, the Olympics like RJ Barrett and Kelly Olenek and so on, what Dylan Brooks, regardless of their various contribution levels, even if you look at other players, like, I mean, Nikhil Alexander Walker was that was on the team too, but he has played exceptionally well. You know, you look at Shaden Sharp or Leonard Miller or even Wiggins to a certain extent, like the Canadian talent, has never been better. And it's, I think it's one of my favorite aspects of this current NBA season. Yeah, you're both wrong. And listen, I, I am nostalgic. I'm emotional. I thought to myself, there's just no way like Nash. He, he was a culture setter for those sons. Like he made Amari Stoudemire, a lot of money. He made Mike D'Antoni a lot of money. He changed an entire franchise and an era of basketball. This is a ludicrous conversation a microwave hot take that people only remember what happened in the last two weeks and then I looked at his numbers and I said this guy is averaging 31 five rebounds six assists shooting 54 percent from the floor 90 from the free throw line oh and by the way he also could be all defense this year like that defense is a big part of it that we we don't really take in because you know his numbers are comparable to Nash's. Obviously, Nash had more assists. Shea is scoring more points. <laughs> Nash had 12. is 11 and a half assists the first time he won MVP. Wild. Wild. And, and so, uh, even if we want to say, you know, it, it's a photo finish offensively here and there, it's not close defensively. Yep. And that's why I think it is Shea. And he, he might not get the MVP to validate it because, again, the MVP is somewhat of a narrative award. And although people have tired of giving it to the Joker and the warriors are a hot mess. And so it's slightly likely not going to go to Curry Embiid. and you know, if the Sixers, you know, have a top two seed in the East without Harden, you know, it could go to Embiid real issue with Embiid is, is he going to play enough games? Yeah. Because he's the rule now. They're correct. Yeah. And he, I believe cannot miss 11 more That's games. Right. Um, or else he's out of uh, contention. So uh, he's averaging 35 a game. Like it's absurd. 35. The, the, but the numbers in the NBA these days, like that's, that's what's hard about this. It's like 
Nash put up, you could argue, inflated numbers because of the offense that they played relative to everybody else. He had 18 a game, 11 and a half assists, shot 50% from the field, 43% from three. They had a ton of opportunities with that Suns offense, but that's comparable to the NBA now. Like the numbers are insane. Look at the, how many players are averaging over 30 a game. Like all of them, every single MVP candidate is averaging over 50 or over 30 a game. I, I, I do think the offensive numbers are inflated. I do think the difference though is now, I think they're, the league is deeper in terms of good players and good teams. Sure. Just look at the West, right? The Thunder are the two seed. Obviously, the Timberwolves, you know, have figured things out thus far off to a quick start. The Nuggets are the defending champs. The Clippers are loaded. The Kings broke through last year and are really good. The Pelicans, when Zion has been healthy, the Pelicans have been a problem. The Mavericks have Luka and Kyrie. When they're healthy, they're a problem. Who has more talent top end than the Suns? I thought the Houston Rockets experiment was bizarre, but they've been really good. The Lakers still have AD and LeBron. I've named 10 teams, and I didn't talk about the team of the decade, the Golden State Warriors, who have been without their second most valuable player in Draymond Green because he can't stop assaulting people. So that's not even including the Grizzlies with Jaw. Now, that's just the West, and there's... I would make a case that the top of the East might actually have more elite teams. So I, I think the difference now is there are not many nights off. Like aside from Pistons, Wizards, Hornets, and sadly Raptors, there aren't many nights off right now in the NBA. And so I think what Shea's doing relative to the overall competition is key. But we shall see. There's more basketball to be played. Listen, I came in here, doom and gloom, not really bullish on all things Raptors. And now I leave a little pep in my step. Love it. Loving where the sport is, loving where our Canadians are. Hopefully uh, another great Canadian, RJ Barrett can take a step now that he's back home in a Raptors uniform. Appreciate you, Jesse. It's amazing, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That is going deep. Let us know what you think. Hit us up on X. I kind of just want to continue to say Twitter out of spite, but you know the bird app. Is there still a bird on the logo? No, I think it's actually a black and white X. That's right. Hit us up on social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will respond because these are just our opinions. We're not experts. But the fact that we are still talking about the growth of the game in Canada is a plus. While you're online, feel free to like, rate, share, and subscribe. And if you're going to give stars, might as well just hand out five. Like, literally the same motion with your thumb if you're going to go four or three. So just give us a five. We'll talk to you next time.